You're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Philpakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Here on Theory and Practice, we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. We find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. Today on the show, we'll hear from Corey Bargman, head of science for the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a professor at the Rockefeller University in New York. So stay with us as we explore questions and solutions on theory and practice. So Anthony, I got a chance to sit down with Corey Bargman, head of science for the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. She's also, and stay with me here, this is a long endowed chair title, the head of the Lulu and Anthony Wang Laboratory of Neural Circuits and Behavior and the Torsten N. Weasel Professor at the Rockefeller University in New York. Well, it sounds like a mouthful, but it also sounds pretty awesome. I'm excited to hear the conversation. Yeah, so let's take a listen. The first question we asked was how she got where she is now. I've been in science my whole life. I love science. I started working in a lab when I was 17 years old, and I basically never got out. I've worked on bacterial genetics. I've worked on the biology of cancer. I've worked on neuroscience, including development of the nervous system and genetics of the nervous system and function. Now I'm starting to think about science on a larger scale and how to make science better for everyone. I definitely want to touch on all those different aspects kind of as we have our conversation. But but first, I have to do kind of like a fanboy thing. If there were science trading cards, I would, I would have your trading card. Your work on worm behavior was really, really formative to me. I mean, my whole kind of PhD was an attempt to do just a little, little, little bit of what you did in worms, but to do that in mice. So it's, it's honestly is a true honor to, to be speaking with you today. I super appreciate you taking the time. And I'm glad to talk to you. A lot of people in the audience won't know that we're scientific relatives because you did your PhD work yes. with Bob Dada, who was a postdoc with Richard Axel, who was my husband. So that makes me something like your scientific great aunt or something. And it's just a sign of the way that in the scientific community, people are often connected to each other through relationships of collaboration or through mentorship or through being in the same places. It's one of the good things about science that we have this extended community. Absolutely. There's a couple avenues that I'm really interested in hearing from you about. So I guess the most recent one, maybe we could kind of go in reverse chronological order, is it seems like recently you've made a concerted effort to scale up your impact or to work on problems that maybe to my eye seem like meta problems, like not just a scientific question, but a question about how to do science. I think what you're talking about is the transition to leadership, where after having run a lab for a long time and had that be the thing that I wanted to do and I'm passionate about, I've spent over the past seven years or so time working on two projects to support science as a whole. And the first was the Brain Initiative, um, where I was the co-director together with Bill Newsom of the working group that NIH put together to lead the planning for this new project in understanding how the brain works that was announced by President Obama in 2012, I guess. And so over two years, we spent a lot of time thinking about what does neuroscience need, what could really move the field forward, had a great time talking to a lot of smart people. It's been incredibly exciting since that started to see how it's developed. And that, I guess, was sort of the warm-up for the next stage of what I've been doing for the past three years, which is working at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is a new philanthropy set up by Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan. And it's devoted to taking important approaches to try and accelerate and improve the fields of education, justice and opportunity, and biomedical science. And I'm the head of the science project. When I met Mark and Priscilla, and I asked them what they hoped to do with their philanthropy, they said they wanted to support science and technology that would make it possible to cure, prevent, or manage all diseases by the end of the century. That's uh, pretty ambitious. <laughs> you know, it's a really ambitious statement, but what I really like about it is the end of the century part, because if you look back 100 years and you ask where medicine was then and where it is now, we've probably cured about half of the diseases or prevented or managed them that existed at that time. We've made incredible advances in infectious disease. We've made incredible advances in cardiovascular disease and in cancer during that time. So it's, in a way, a statement of respect for how much science can do 
when it addresses problems. Having said that, I still think getting the other half solved in 100 years would be a very ambitious goal, let's say. And so just trying to think with them about what that would mean and what that would take has been a really rewarding experience. So we get set this really ambitious goal in science, and we try to think about what it would really take to make the kind of progress against all diseases that Mark and Priscilla would like to have happen. And really what it comes down to is I'm a scientist. I've spent my whole life as a scientist, and I really, really believe in the scientific process. I really believe that science can, can advance our understanding of disease, and ultimately that will advance our ability to manage diseases and solve diseases. And I have personal experience from my work in cancer of having seen how the most basic science discoveries, just the crumbs of information that people were finding out when we understood very little, have ultimately led to successful therapeutics. So I believe. And I also believe that there are a lot of really smart people out there in science who are dedicated to these problems and who want to do the best job they can to make them happen. So I see our job at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative really as being an accelerator, a catalyst. And our question is, how can we accelerate science so that every scientist can be making progress twice as fast, or five times as fast, or 10 times as fast, and so the whole field will move forward at a greater speed? So it's really a collective idea. It's not we're going to do this. It's we are going to help scientists do this that we are viewing as our main approach to the problem. And with that in mind, again, it's sort of a set of logical questions. How do you accelerate science? Well, first you ask scientists, like, what are the roadblocks? What's slowing you down? You work with scientists to identify what those are. What are scientists saying are the roadblocks? So one of the big roadblocks that people are encountering now that's really a new thing in science is that people are able to generate data faster than they're able to analyze it. So we've reached a point where, for example, there are incredible new microscopes that can record biological processes like the activity of the brain at single cell resolution or the development of an embryo starting from a single cell growing up to many cells. And you end up with four-dimensional data, three dimensions plus time. You end up with a terabyte of data in a box. And people can't even open those files, let alone analyze them. So all of a sudden, the problem right. has gone from just generating data and experiment to analyzing it, understanding it, and interpreting it. And so this has been a change in the time that I've been in science. I like to tell people that when I was a graduate student, I would do an experiment, and the experiment would take me a month. And at the end of a month, I would look at a piece of x-ray film for about 10 minutes, I would understand what it meant, and then I would do another experiment, and it would take a month. And now that's flipped. Now you can take a movie in 10 minutes that takes you a month to analyze. And so one of the big bottlenecks in science... I know that very intimately. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What are those mice doing, you thought to yourself, as the mice reared up and laid down and ran around the cage, right? So that's been one of the things that we're trying to think about. And, and that's a great place for a philanthropy that's built in Silicon Valley to get involved in a problem. There's a couple of things that strike me there. The first is like, there's a couple ways you could potentially contribute to try to help that problem. The first would be, you know, building great tools so that people can just literally open giant files. Like if that's the blocker, just make the software tool that lets you open giant files. But there's this other aspect that I'm, I'm really curious to hear you're thinking about, which is before you do an experiment because you already kind of knew the question you wanted to answer. And interpreting the data was simple, not just because there wasn't a lot of it, but because, in a sense, because you were so constrained with time, you had to be very clear about what you were asking ahead of time, or this is my impression. But now you can, with the click of a button, just turn on a microscope, collect an enormous amount of data without even a hypothesis in mind, and in a sense, go fishing and just see what you see and explore and play. And that's become cheap enough where you can actually just do this daily now and eventually hope to come up with something or find something interesting. So this hypothesis-free exploration coupled with enormous data sets, there's something new there. I'm, I'm curious what you think about that situation. You know, I think that there is something new here, but it's a question of degree and not a completely mm. new thing. So to my mind, science always goes back and forth between a process of observation that allows you to formulate ideas and then a process of testing those ideas. 
So I study animal behavior, as you did. And the first step of that is to just observe and to see what happens and to think about the environment. And that might be a field biologist studying animal behavior, or it might be a scientist in a lab studying animal behavior, or for that matter, it might be a psychologist studying the behavior of children. And those observations start and then help you to frame the questions that you then go in and ask a more focused question about. What has changed now is that observation stage is now massively scaled up compared to what it could be before. And people can combine their observations across many, many individuals and start to generate population level and statistical level observations that we couldn't do before. But I think the idea that science is all about testing a hypothesis is, is always a little too narrow for what science really is from that mm. process of kind of stepping back and looking and then zooming in. But yes, it's definitely a change in where we are now. And I think that idea of hypothesis-driven research versus observational or discovery research is something that we should respect on both sides and not just on one or the other. Yeah, I, sometimes I feel this bit of a tension as, as a younger scientist between creating falsifiable hypotheses that end up in nice papers and just learning new things. You know, the experimental animal that I work on is the nematode worm Cenorhabditis elegans. And if I look back at what some of the most important papers were in C. elegans, they were papers that just described the system and set up a huge number of biological questions that people are still trying to address today. So the paper that motivates the work in my lab is a paper that describes the complete nervous system of the worm every single neuron in the animal's brain, every single connection they have with each other. And it's one paper, and it's 340 pages long, and there's not a single hypothesis tested in the whole thing. <laughs> and yet, 30-some years later, it still guides all the work that goes on in my lab, and I turn to it on a near daily basis. So that's a great example of something where someone made observations that then created a whole set of questions that could be asked and hypotheses that could be tested. So I think we need to respect both sides of the scientific venture. And one of the things we're thinking about at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is how to highlight the different pieces of the scientific process and to really bring out the ones that have maybe not gotten as much respect as they fully deserve. So one of those are these observations and how you share those observations at scale. Another thing is that there are a lot of really important things that happen a little bit in the background in science that are absolutely critical, like developing really good protocols so that people can do the same experiment and get the same result and have it work in their lab. And often there's a premium placed on the person who develops the very first proof of concept, but there's not as much respect for the person who then just puts their head down for 10 years and really makes it work so that everyone can make it work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so one of the things we're saying is, hey, this is a really important thing. Let's make sure that gets support, too. So tell me a little bit about what that looks like mechanically to actually reward that heads-down work. I mean, I'm kind of seeing almost an industrial mindset, which is, you know, there's the, hey, this thing could work, and then, hey, this thing actually works, and we can use it to do new things. And, you know, there's different reward structures in different parts of the world that incentivize one thing versus the other. So I'm curious what you're doing to actually try to push that forward. So at a practical level, the things that you need to be a scientist are you need to have a job and you need to have funding. That's a pretty simple combination. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that there are a lot of great institutions that are sort of thinking about this from an institutional point of view of where people get jobs. But I think maybe there's a little less creativity in thinking about how funding is given out. That's the lever that we can push on here at a philanthropy, we can say, you know, we want to fund some of the parts of science that haven't been funded so much before. And I'll give you a couple of examples of programs we're doing that I'm really proud of. Since you and I were talking about microscopy, microscopy is an incredibly important tool for science. And a huge amount of what science involves is at some point looking through different kinds of microscopy images. There's been a lot of great hardware development. And if you ask who are the people who really bring that to the field and make everyone a better scientist in that respect, it's the people who run core facilities at universities. So these are people who you know, manage 
the new microscopes, who train the students in the lab, who collaborate with scientists to do better experiments, who often improve the technologies and bring them out to people. And they're in kind of a bit of a strange situation in a lot of universities where they're not exactly faculty members, and they're certainly not students, and their positions are a little unstable. And so we started a program last year where we started specifically funding the staff scientists in these universities who work in imaging facilities and they've started getting together and they have really creative ideas about how to disseminate best practices among each other and set up courses for people in core facilities and identify problems that one of them has solved that another one of them can now learn from. So this is something where we feel like we can start to knit together a really critical group of people in the scientific enterprise who haven't gotten as much respect as we would like to see them get. Another example of something that we're supporting, again, that I'm very proud of, that we're about to announce in a big way, is we're supporting people who are writing open source software for science. Well, that is fantastic. Wow, okay. <laughs> okay, good, glad, glad, glad you're on board. I'm completely on board. You're talking about my people, <laughs> programmers in science. Well, exactly. So, you know, on the one hand, there's professional software, you know, it's fabulous that there are companies that make web browsers and word processing programs and so forth. But that requires hundreds of highly skilled people. And on the other hand, there's the software and the code that gets written in labs, which happens every day. And there's lots of really clever ideas there. And it's um, often the algorithms are developed by some grad student in a lab. But those things are not necessarily things that can even go to the next graduate student in the lab, let alone be used broadly across labs. We want people to use the same tools because as people use similar tools to solve problems, they can build on each other's work and develop best practices and much more easily understand what different people have done and, and uncover subtleties in the work. So we would like people to be able to share approaches. And as we've explored these areas, we discovered that there are a lot of really great groups working pretty much for free on building open source software, some of which is very widely used in the scientific community. So there are tools like ImageJ slash Fiji that's used for microscopy that are used by probably tens of thousands of people worldwide. And there are different kinds of libraries that are used for lots of different programming purposes in biomedical science that are used that literally have like a hundred thousand what are called dependencies right where other people are building on those tools and when we investigated that we found that there's essentially no systematic mechanism for funding these things that some of the most widely used tools have never had any kind of dedicated grant funding they have a volunteer community they have a strong scientific community that's working with the software engineers already and a relatively small amount of financial support on top of that could stabilize something that otherwise feels a little vulnerable in the sense that if one key person disappeared, you know, where would this go? Just to kind of like firm up this, feels like a place that maybe we can find the right model for supporting software that might be used by a hundred labs or a thousand labs not just one, you know, not by a billion people, but in the kind of intermediate zone that science will often find right. itself operating. So we're about to announce our first round of grantees in the open source software program. We're really excited about this. I think this is a place that we could have a real impact in moving science forward and again, lifting all boats. Like my lab's not gonna write the open source software, but we're gonna use it and we're gonna be grateful and our right. work will be better as a result. I think it's incredibly like, I don't know what to say. Like, I think it's just incredible to elevate this kind of work, which has always been a labor of love, at least in my experience. Like, you do this because you love to do it, but also it solves problems that you know need to be solved. And there's a community spirit aspect of it, which is if it's my problem, I know somebody else has this problem too. And so I'm going to try my best to get this out there. And I think it's wonderful that you're elevating people that are actually kind of doing this kind of community service. It's, it's incredible. There's a couple things that this reminds me of in the machine learning world, which is, it's my opinion that machine learning has advanced one data set at a time. 
that there's been really wonderful insights in architectural innovations and in math, but the big quantum leaps were these large data sets. And I think there's a parallel to kind of what you were saying before, which is, you know, when C. elegans, when all the neurons were described, that set this foundation for a field which has been rolling ever since and producing incredible work. And I kind of view that, you know, whatever 300-page paper as a data set. It just happens to come in textual form. Uh, So I kind of recognize that parallel a little bit. And machine learning is also always open-sourced everything. And people have always been building on each other's stuff. I think these are really good properties of the machine learning research community. And it's really, really neat to see that being magnified by your work uh, through CCI in biology and in this other realm. That's a great insight. I'm going to go back and think about science advancing one data set at a time. I haven't thought about things that way in the past, but I'm going to think about it in the context of the Human Genome Project, where as we get more and more genomes, the data sets themselves are driving progress at a whole set of scientific and technical levels. Good thought. Well, let's let's think about a little bit here. I mean, there's other examples that I think are neat, like what Aviv Regev is doing with the Human Cell Atlas. I'm just not up on all the consortiums that are happening right now, but there's got to be other examples of people working towards like a giant shared data set repository that we know we can just go dive in and swim through and find things in and kind of build on top of. We're very excited about the Human Cell Atlas project as the next example of a great kind of infrastructure project that can move all the science forward. I guess we should probably stop and describe what the Human Cell Atlas is first. Do you have like the the blurb of what it is in your eyes? Sure. So the Human Cell Atlas is a project to create a parts list of all of the cells in the human body. So everyone knows that the cell is the basic unit of life and a human body consists of cells. Now there are about 37 trillion cells in the human body. And we don't actually know how many kinds of cells there are, or how many of each, or who their neighbors are, or what their molecular composition is, in nearly as much detail as we'd like to. What we know is that there are probably not 37 trillion unique cells. You know, there's definitely cells that are all yeah, kind of the each same. Each one is not. Like the red blood cells. Each one is not like a unique butterfly or something like that. Exactly. They're going to fall in categories. But like we don't know, are there, mm-hmm. are there like a thousand cell types? Probably more. Are there a million cell types? Probably less. Uh, where are we in between there? We're not sure. And this has been, you know, one of the projects of biology since its very beginning. And we love this at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And I'm proud to say that we were the first funders to kind of specifically get on board and say, we want to be part of this project three years ago. And the reason is, if we take our idea that we want to accelerate progress against all diseases, well, every disease has a cellular basis. Every disease represents some cells in your body either not doing what they're supposed to do or doing something they're not supposed to do. And so if you have the foundation of what all of those cells are, and you have a really good data set that enables you to say what their normal range of, for example, gene expression is, and how that varies across time and how that varies between individuals, you now have a foundation for understanding what goes wrong in disease. And not just one disease, but every disease. So we think this is a great example Mm -hmm. of the sort of thing that moves things forward. And I have to say, you mentioned some names. One of the things that I particularly enjoy about the Human Cell Atlas is that it's an international project. It's an open-door project. It's all volunteers. It's scientists who signed on because they're excited about the potential. It didn't really start from a big top-down process, but rather bottom-up. And... I have to say that personally, I kind of like the fact that the two people who emerged as the leaders who've done the work on that are two really talented women who are computational biologists and experimental biologists. And those are Aviv Regev at the Broad Institute in Boston and Sarah Teichman at the Wellcome Sanger Center in the UK. And they have sort of set up these Coalition of the Willing meetings. There are now about a thousand different labs around the world who are signed on as participants in the Human Cell Atlas Project. There are now a number of different funding organizations that have signed up, and everyone is really enthusiastic about this idea that we are going to make the resource that describes the human body at a cellular level. So you can think of it as the Genome Project for Cells. I think it's, yeah, absolutely incredible. And Aviv and Sarah are incredible, incredible scientists. And it's, it's just, it's good vibes. <laughs> the whole thing is incredible. 
Yeah, and it's still early on, but already people have started making discoveries using this approach. And, you know, again, I would say one of the things that you see in science is that progress often happens because of an advance in technology. And the human cell atlas mm. has always been a great question, but what's really driving it forward has been advances in technology that now enable you to look one cell at a time and determine which genes are active in that cell. Whereas before, you had to make those measurements across a million cells at a time, for example, or even more. And by being able to look one cell at a time, what are called single cell technologies, now suddenly it's possible to really generate a precision of the answer of what a cell is that we weren't able to do before. That's something that I'd really like to dig into a bit of a macro point, because over your career, the papers that I've read that you've had, you aren't really afraid of using new technologies or using old technologies, like whichever is like doing the job. I think single cell sequencing is this interesting window into you know science as being advanced by tools as much as data sets, where it started off as my understanding is a little bit difficult to use and a little bit noisy, but it was clear that it was going to give us a window into something we didn't have a window into before. I really am curious to hear your thinking about the trade-off of, you know, developing new technologies, knowing when to kind of accept the noise and the difficulty and the challenge of working with something new, because it really opens up a new question. And then the relative effort that you have to put in to actually get it to work for everybody. How do you think about this? So first of all, at Chan Zuckerberg, we're big supporters of the single cell biology community. We're very excited about that work. We are by no means the only supporters, and we work closely with lots of other funders in this area, including private funders and the European Commission and public funders and some projects within the NIH. So I want to make sure that this doesn't sound like we're taking credit for everything. Sure, sure, of course. So just to, <laughs> just to be clear about that to start with. But yes, yes. so... Since we got involved with the Human Cell Atlas project very early, one of the first things that we saw starting in, you know, around three years ago when people were starting to crystallize these ideas is that the technology was developing, but it wasn't very robust. And so, for example, there were sort of three data sets that were generated in a part of the mouse brain and the mouse visual cortex by three different groups. And they didn't even really get the same number of cell types out of that, let alone exactly the same genes expressed in each cell type. And so it was pretty clear that this was promising, but not yet what in the software world we call hardened, right? It was still right. kind of soft. And so this was an example of something where there had been some really exciting early papers demonstrating that something was going to work. And the first grants that we gave in this area at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which was actually our first request for applications, was, hey, how about people working on making this technology better? How can we develop best practices? How can we develop better tools? How can we work together to improve those? And one of the projects that came out of that was a project called Space TX, in which 10 different groups in multiple countries at multiple institutions decided to work together to compare their different methods for determining single cell gene expression using the same tissues, literally the same tissues that were being spread out among them so that mm. they could benchmark and say, hey, this method's really good for this, but not so good for that. And, and here's something that we're seeing that has improved this. And at the same time, they're all making all of their technologies a little bit better this kind of cooperative ability of people to each do their own thing, but to share information with each other, I think is a great example of where you can move technology forward. That's one aspect of what we felt the field had to improve. At Chan Zuckerberg, we supported funding to help that happen. Another thing that the field clearly needed and still needs is a lot of work on the computational side. So this right. is a different kind of data from the kind of data we're used to dealing with. It's kind of statistical and probabilistic. It has a number of qualities that make it, you know, nonlinear. And so pretty much the scientists are more or less having to invent a kind of math to figure out how all these data relate to each other, to sort of map them onto each other without necessarily knowing exactly what the ground truth is. It's like trying to look at, 
you know, stars in a very distant galaxy. You can kind of get a sense of them, but it's not a perfect image yet. And so how do you extract more information from those data? And one of the other areas, our second set of grants actually, was specifically around computational tools. Like how can we develop better computational methods? And this idea of sort of pushing forward both the experimental methods and the computational methods at the same time has been something that the Human Cell Atlas has been a great place for us to figure out what works, what doesn't work, what we can do better next time, how to get these groups to work together rather than separately, and so forth. We're doing experiments. In part, we're trying to support science just to make great science happen. And in part, we're also doing experiments in how to support science. What's the best way to get scientists to work together? Along those lines, are your experiments uh, hypothesis-free? Or uh, are you working from particular principles that you're trying to test here, like tying back to our earlier conversation? We do have a set of hypotheses about what would make science work better. You know, that's partly based on my own intuition after being in science for a long time. It's partly based on having a great scientific advisory board. Our scientific advisors are characterized both by being scientists who've done really important work themselves and by being people who have each led some important scientific enterprise or some kind of a new and innovative scientific program. So Harold Varmus, a former director of the National Institutes of Health. Bob Tejan, the former director of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Shirley Tillman, who was president of Princeton and also has very innovative ideas about supporting young scientists in different parts of the scientific workforce that we're taking into account. So we're gathering ideas from them, but here are our hypotheses about how to make science work better. So the first is that you really have to believe in people. You really have to support people to do good work, and that that has to be a key part of what you're doing. And an example of that might be the imaging staff scientists. These are people who are really important in science who weren't getting the appreciation and sort of stability in their institutions that they needed. Let's support some of them. Second hypothesis is that tools and technologies are really important for moving science forward, and that by getting better tools and technologies, by getting people to coalesce around those, you will cause fields to advance more quickly. You will cause them to get over sort of the original kind of bulky period where things are getting developed faster and getting to the point that new discoveries are made. The third idea is an idea around collaboration, that the problems we have right now in science are complicated problems, that we're picking off the easy problems one at a time, and that leaves us with things that will often require people to work together across disciplines, across expertise, and that we want to make it easier for people to work together whether those are physicians working with experimental scientists, whether those are scientists at the bench working together with people who are writing software or people who are doing computational work, whether those are bringing patients and their advocates into the scientific process as well when you're starting to talk about disease. So this idea of collaboration is our third hypothesis, that we think that these interdisciplinary collaborations, which, which are hard, um, are going to move science hard, forward. Yes. Our final hypothesis is that one of the hardest things right now in science is how people can share and discover information. And so we're big believers in open science, in getting information out as fast as possible, in helping scientists to discover the science that's out there as quickly as possible, and to put that together to move fields forward. In each of the projects we're doing, we're representing some combination of the above. We're representing ideas about how we could potentially move fields forward by supporting one or more of the above. And we're trying to make measurements as best as we can of what we're actually achieving by doing so. I'm very curious about hypothesis number three, which is getting different people to work together effectively. And that's ostensibly the thesis of this podcast is that the interface between machine learning kind of computation and biology or medicine is, is an interesting interface and the people should be talking more and we should be highlighting conversations at that border. What can we do to make those collaborations more facile, to make them happen more often and for them to be, to be deeper? I would say that I am a one-woman experiment in trying to collaborate across experimental science and quantitative science and engineering. And so I can give you sort of a personal set of insights from that. Maybe the first insight and the one that really 
brings me forward in the work that we're doing at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is that for a number of years, I had a very close collaboration, and I still have a good scientific relationship with a theoretical neuroscientist, Larry Abbott, who is trained as a physicist who doesn't do a single experiment himself or in his lab, but who works closely with experimentalists to help them really understand the kind of work they're doing and reach kind of conceptual frameworks and really good experimental design to move them. And that was such an enriching experience for me and for my lab that it really makes me see that it's worthwhile to have experimental scientists and quantitative scientists work together. So then I came here, and the idea is to push even further, is to say, well, let's get scientists and engineers to work together. So fields like machine learning, mm. we're going to consider more of an engineering field, if that's OK. I think that's OK. <laughs> OK. So the, so the first thing to say is that like, if you're a layperson, you think that scientists and engineers are practically the same thing. And it, it is not so. It is so not so. We speak completely different languages. We have a different time frame in terms of how fast we expect things to happen. If you just leave us alone, we really don't understand each other's needs and capabilities. And then you go to an engineer, and I went to them and I said, how could you better work with scientists? And they said, you know, if you're gonna be a funder, maybe you could just fund scientists to do the experiment a thousand times so we could do machine learning on it. I see. <laughs> and the answer is no, no, there's not enough money in the world to make scientists do the experiment a thousand times. So both sides need to understand each other's needs and capabilities. They need to be able to translate between them. And very quickly here at Chan Zuckerberg, what we realized is that we needed this kind of translation layer who are computational biologists, people who have worked next to scientists in a laboratory, and so they really understand what an experiment is and how many times you can do it and what you can interpret it and what you can't. And on the other side, they have written code, they know something about how software is written and used, and they can see what the capabilities are on those sides. And so having that translation layer is really important so that science and engineering can meet each other where they are. An example of that might be, you have to be able to develop the methods with a relatively small number of experiments, not a thousand experiments or 10,000 experiments. You know, if you wanna go on the internet and tell cats from dogs, you can get a million pictures of cats and dogs, but that's not gonna happen with some more elaborate scientific experiment. So let's figure out what are the tools we could use where a smaller number could be used to reach across that divide. One thing that I'm curious is, so if you were to meet your, this may be an intense question, but if you were to meet your younger self at 21, what advice would you give to her? There's a different answer to that question about whether I am meeting my younger self when I actually was 21 or whether I was meeting a 21-year-old mm. now. So mm. my younger self at 21, I would say, don't do anything different because I have had such a fantastic life. I've had such a great experience as a scientist. I've been in amazing places. I've worked with amazing, brilliant people. I've had wonderful opportunities as a scientist and now in science leadership that I just can't believe my own good fortune. I have great friends. I have great colleagues. I would not change a thing that whatever that my 21-year-old self, <laughs> whatever my 21-year-old self would do, had did then, you know, I'm just grateful for the life that I have. I'm grateful for the wow. opportunities I've had. Now, if you want me to do something more for a 21-year-old now, I would say, for a 21-year-old now, I would say, you know, science, when I started science, again, I had taken calculus in college, but I don't think I used calculus at all for like the first 10 or 15 years that I was a scientist. Now I think really having some understanding of things like statistics and math and calculus are things that every scientist can bring in. So if I were 21 years old now, I'd say, hey, keep up your math skills because you know what? That's going to be good. That's going to be really useful. And it's going to help you understand things. But the real thing I would say to a young scientist is Find the most exciting question you can find. Find the question that makes you ask yourself, like, how could this possibly work? I don't understand how this could possibly work. Because then you know you have a question that there isn't already an answer to. And following that, learning enough 
to know what those questions are takes time. Science is a process that is done by people who spend a lot of time training. They spend a lot of time learning what's already known and how you go about learning new things and what the different approaches are and what their strengths and weaknesses are. So it's, a, it's an arduous process. But at its heart, it's really about these exciting unanswered questions. Why is there something instead of nothing? How did life evolve? How, how does the brain work? How does the body work? How do the brain and the body interact with each other? And then that leads to these incredibly important questions that we all have to address as people and as a society. How can we prevent diseases? How can we manage them or cure them once they've arisen? How can we stabilize and ultimately reverse the damage that we've done to the environment through better science? I think the answer to technology is going to be more technology. We have to move forward in those areas. And when I say we, I guess I mean, for me, we is science. I'm a scientist. Mm. And if I'm talking to my 21-year-old self or a 21-year-old scientist of any sort, I'm like, I mean we to you too. If you're a scientist, we're on mm. the same side. We're trying to do the same things. We're trying to move understanding forward, ultimately for the benefit of people and for the planet. And that too is one of the nice things about science, is that sense of a shared a shared purpose and a shared understanding that we reach together. I think that's that's really beautiful and it, and it resonates with me. One other side of the coin though, with asking questions that don't have answers, and this is something I still struggle with deeply, is the other side of the coin is, is uncertainty and not knowing if you've asked the right question or if you're going in the right direction. So an example from what we talked about earlier is the single cell sequencing data. Early on, people were getting different answers. It wasn't clear that this was working. It might not have been clear. I wasn't there. I don't know. It might not have been clear if it ever would work. And sometimes that can be a little overwhelming. How do you think about that? Maybe the, the hard thing about science, maybe the hardest thing, is how long it takes and how much failure there is along the way. So when you're a scientist, you keep trying to do the same thing over and over again. And the idea that it just works right away or that you have a brilliant idea and it works instantly, I'm sure that happens to some people, but honestly, it's never happened to me. When I was in grad school, there was this one point at which I just kept doing the same experiment over and over again. And like I said, at that point, every experiment took a month. And so I would do the experiment, it would take a month, and it failed. And for six months, I just kept doing that same experiment. And then one day I went home and I was like, you know, if this experiment fails again, I'm going to still get my PhD because I've worked hard for it, but after, I'm going to quit science. I just, I can't take it anymore. I just can't take all this negative reinforcement. And I did the experiment again hmm. and it failed. <laughs> oh, no, I did not <laughs> expect the story to go there. <laughs> I didn't quit. And then like about three months later, it finally worked. And, um, Wow. And, you know, and in retrospect, I even figured out why I've been failing, and I've been failing for the stupidest technical reason. And that's the other thing that happens in science, is it's really blue collar. There's all these pieces of equipment that have to work, and there's all these bacteria that have to grow, and they have to not generate mutations. It's just, there's so much like that. And so you do have to be able to delay gratification to be a good scientist. You have to be mm. able to delay gratification almost indefinitely. But if you can do that, it's the greatest thing. You were doing it for six months, and then you reached your quitting point, and then you did it half that time again. Yep. Um, that's, that's something else. But I mean, this, this gene that you were working on, how is it pronounced? Uh, new, new? We right? called N it new. Yeah, we called it N-E-U, new for neuroblastoma. But if I remember correctly, the work that you did ended up kind of eventually making it into an actual treatment. I was one person along a path that led from the discovery of that mm. gene, the recognition that it was involved in causing cancer, first in animals, and the recognition that those cancers could be cured by the body's own immune system. And that led to a path to the discovery by Dennis Slayman that the same gene was overexpressed in human breast cancers in a subset of very, very aggressive human breast cancers. 
And that then led to a body of work at Genentech to use that same approach of using the body's own immune system, or in this case, an engineered external version of the immune system, to fight the cancer that led to the development of a drug called Herceptin. It's used to treat, I think, about 100,000 women a year who have a very aggressive form of breast cancer. I think technically it was the first sort of rationally designed drug that targeted exactly the mutation in a cancer that caused the cancer cells to grow. Now, I'm a small player in that story. There are probably at least 100, maybe 1,000 people who, who contributed as much as I did. But it's still a great feeling to have been part of something that important. Right, so not only was there this six-month period where nothing worked, the nine-month period, but, I mean, how long was the distance from that until it found a new kind of impact in, in human disease? The drug was approved about 12 years after I made the, the discovery of the mutation mm. in the gene. And that, was, mm. that itself was perhaps eight years after the first people had started to detect that there was something interesting going on in this one particular kind of neuroblastoma. So maybe it's a 20-year process mm. from the very first discoveries to the treatment, or maybe it was a 20-year process then, you know, and I was somewhere in the middle. But one of the mm. things, again, it's like if we could just accelerate that process so that it was a five-year process instead, that's, that's yes. what it would take for our 100-year goal for the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. But yeah, I'm impossible in this way because I really believe that science works. My own experience tells me it can work. So you're not going to be able to get me to back down off of that. I've had a a really wonderful time talking with you. Thank you so much for making the time. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention or, or think about or talk about? No, it was great talking to you. Thank you for the opportunity. Corey Bargman, thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful talking. Same here. That was Corey Bargman, head of science at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Really, really great insights from her. I absolutely agree. It was like speaking to one of my scientific heroes. It it wasn't like it. That's exactly what it was. Awesome. So is it time for Hammer and Nail? Let's do it, my friend. Today, I want to bring up something a little bit different. I don't know if it's a hammer. I don't know if it's a nail, but it certainly has to do with the whole kind of, if we're continuing the metaphor, carpentry, and that's imposter syndrome. Actually, I'm really glad you brought this up, Alex. This is something that I have struggled with forever. Me too. And I guess the the top level thing that makes it interesting is I think everybody struggles with it and almost everybody struggles with it in private. You know, it's right. I think it's one of these things that inside everyone feels, but the number of times I've actually had somebody explicitly call it out, very rare. The first time I ever heard the term was, you know, I was talking to one of my mentors that I admired greatly and said, you know, sometimes I just feel like, I don't have the skills to do what I'm doing, and I've just done a good job of faking it. And uh, he said, it's called the imposter syndrome. Get over it. (laughs) That was the advice? Yeah. (laughs) No more specific than that. You know, but in a weird way, it was a little bit right in terms of a big part of what is involved is actually internally coming to the grips that you should have more confidence than you do, that you should be more confident in your skills than you are. And I think it's one of these things that, as you say, a lot of people struggle with. It holds a lot of people back, and it's very, very important. When did you first experience imposter syndrome? So for sure, uh, I would say that for a lot of my life, I've experienced it. The time that I felt it most acutely was when I was doing um, what's called the part three, or it's a master's in mathematics at Cambridge. So kind of an interesting background. When I first went to college, I was planning to be major in philosophy or classics and had actually never taken calculus, kind of caught a math bug and got addicted and became a math major. And then I had this great opportunity to go to Cambridge for two years and study math. I think it's fair to say that when I started, I still hadn't had a lot of the background that maybe some people might have. And suddenly I was in this place with all these like math Olympians from around the world. And, you know, to make matters worse, at the end of the year, you take exams and they read out your performance. Oh, my God. From the town hall. And you know exactly what number you are from, Mm. you know, one to 120. It's interesting. It was a very powerful lesson. I mean, first, I had an intense feeling of, I'm not as good as these people. And to some extent, you know, probably that's true, right? There were just a lot of very, very smart people. But what was also very striking, and in a weird way, I was actually kind of lucky that I got interested in math later in life, was you started seeing all of these people who their whole identity had been being good at math. I see. From five years old, you know, I'm a math whiz. And then all of a sudden you're in this environment where you hit your limits, or, or at least you are now kind of amongst the, you know, the best of the best and you're no longer the best person anymore. And it was quite striking to me to see a lot of people just have emotional breakdowns and a kind of a sense of everything I think I am 
is not me anymore. Just to try to yeah. understand, was it so much that their identity as a mathematician was challenged or was it that their identity as the best mathematician was challenged? Yeah. The reality is that their identity as the best mathematician was challenged. Mm. They experienced it as their identity as a mathematician was challenged. I see. Because at least until that point, the two had been synonymous. Right. And again, I think, although I experienced it, it was very hard for me. I think it was less than for many people because I never had the identity of being the best. Yeah. You know, I was just kind of glad to be there. But for many people, it was yeah. very, very profound. And like I said, it was not easy for me as well. And so I think that was the first time I experienced it. When it, did you first learn about it? I mean, I, I knew about it before I knew the words for it, just because you kind of go through academic training and you try to do your best and you're with a lot of other people who are kind of equally motivated and equally smart. And then you kind of progress and all of a sudden the people around you are in some ways legitimately more motivated and more intelligent than you are. Just by virtue of the fact that you're continuing to work on something that you care about, the field is getting smaller, the pool is getting smaller. And so I just really felt this kind of crunch as I was progressing through my training, especially in my PhD, where I'd look to my left and my right, and I'd see these people that are, you know, had saved dolphins and like, you know, were like had already had a PhD before, or like we're doing an MD. It's just like the achievements on paper were growing more and more and more. And my brain couldn't process that. In, in a way where I, I couldn't look at my piece of paper, my CV, and feel like I was an equal. And of course, we're all people. Like, th this is a silly thing to feel, but it's like, I felt it nonetheless. And it grew and grew and grew. And because I kept it private mostly, it kind of grew in a way that, you know, perhaps didn't end up being so healthy, um, keeping it to yourself. And I think this is a common thing for a lot of people, is to not really admit that, like, oh, I actually feel kind of small and not that great around all these other people, when in reality, you might be perceived as somebody that's, you know, doing quite well and, like, you know, on the up and up. And so the gap between your public narrative and your private narrative can really grow. I learned the word imposter syndrome in graduate school as somebody, like a throwaway term, like I, I made a self-deprecating comment, I think, and somebody's like, oh, sounds like imposter syndrome. And that like really started ringing in my head and getting louder and louder. And then I went and figured out what that was. And I was like, oh, this is a thing that is not just for me, but it's like shared amongst, and then I just started talking with people about it and like everybody has it, but it doesn't make it easier to deal with. It doesn't like lessen the feelings, I guess. But the first admission of just like, oh, I don't feel like I have a handle on everything anymore yeah. was kind of the first step to like just being more comfortable in my own skin professionally, I suppose. Roundabout answer, but like it kind of slowly discovered it because it was forced on me in a way. I think this point about showing a certain amount of vulnerability is an incredibly important one. As you know, I often hear pitches from startups and there are a lot of entrepreneurs who kind of want to present a veneer of, I'm killing it. I'm totally killing it. I'm killing it. Did I tell you how I'm killing it? I'm just killing it. And I'll be honest, like it always kind of throws me off. And those are kind of the meetings that I kind of walk away from with the least enthusiasm mm -hmm. for. Whereas the ones that I walk away from and feel like this is an entrepreneur that I can really work with are ones where they actually show a certain amount of weakness. Right. You know, you say, well, you haven't really done this before. How do you think you're going to be able to actually be successful? And their ability to kind of say, yeah, you're right. This is something that's really on my mind and I'm worried about it, and I know that this is a shortcoming, and here's a plan to address right. it. Moreover, this point about showing vulnerability is also, I've learned, I think, a really powerful tool for building trust. Right, absolutely. You're opening your chest a little bit and showing people what's inside, and it's not like this perfectly oiled machine where everything's going perfectly great. I mean, we're, we're people, and we're filled with blood and guts, yeah. and sometimes our insides aren't that pretty. And like that's, that's the fact. That's the reality. And if you can tell a really powerful story convincing people that, you know, like nothing is wrong in your life, but you live on this earth for however many decades and you just, you know, that cannot be true. Right. It just cannot right. be true. Like life is not always awesome and you don't always kill it. And to keep up that pretense, it's dishonest right. to yourself. It's, it's mostly a disservice to yourself because you, you don't see ways to improve. Well, it's, as I say, it's also a disservice to others around you because then that sets the expectation of this is how you comport yourself. Oh, that's That you're really always presenting like, I'm a winner, yeah. I'm a winner. Absolutely. Um, Especially then, as, a, as a leader, right? And yes. this is something that I think is kind of germane to, to you and, you know, your role leading data science at the Broad. Like, how do you introduce these ideas? Because they're important ideas. They ha actually impact team productivity in a way. If you're always yeah. doubting yourself, it's going to cause issues and trouble and your happiness will, will, will go down. So as a leader, it seems like it's actually an important topic to handle head on. How do you think about that? Yeah. So, you know, in my life at the Broad, once a month, I do town hall and I talk about something of, you know, it's on my mind and open it up to kind of ask me anything mm -hmm. at the end. 
one of the recent ones, we had a block on psychological safety. What is psychological safety? It's about trying to create a workplace where people feel comfortable to be who they are that promotes sort of you being your authentic self and not a fictitious self, where it leaves room for disagreement, for alternative views. You know, and a lot of the credit, I think, goes to the person who was the agile coach for my organization who's just very emotionally attuned to a lot of these things. And so she early on kind of really brought in a lot of ideas around psychological safety in terms of how to, you know, hold inclusive meetings where you mm. leave room for lots of people to talk and mm. to be able to have um, not just one person dominate the conversation, where you make room for people to express alternative views, things like that. Or we started something called the Today I Learn wall, mm. where uh, every time you do something stupid, you put up uh, a little sticky of what you did and kind of celebrate it. It's especially important that a lot of the leaders of the organization do it to kind of show that they're like that. And then even brought up specifically the topic of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I, again, just kind of in an offhanded way, kind of made a statement of they don't teach you how to lead a data sciences organization in med school. Every day I feel like a fraud and I'm afraid that all of you are going to realize it. And you said this was in your yeah. town hall meeting in front, of every, yeah. in front of everybody in your organization. Yeah, it was, you know, in front of my organization. And maybe, I'll be honest, I didn't plan it. It just, you know, kind of came out. And then I kind of said, and I was like, you know, I hope that people, I hope they don't all quit tomorrow because <laughs> <laughs> they, they now know that their leader is a fraud. No, no, they, they now know that their leader thinks that he is a fraud. That's right, that's right. It's an important distinction, I think. But one of the things that was actually very interesting was several people afterwards, I received several emails saying, you know, I've always felt that way myself, and hearing another person in a crowd open up to it right. was really a good thing. And again, it was this reminder of the importance of vulnerability being true to yourself, and that also creates space for other people to do it. I think it's really incredible that, planned or not, that you brought it up in front of a large group of people. I mean, we're right now bringing up in front of people that we don't know, but it doesn't get talked about enough. I think it's particularly germane for what we're talking about here on this podcast, which is field crossing work. That's right. You know, maybe you start in biology, like I started in neuroscience, and then I made this slow kind of crawling transition into machine learning. And I got to tell you, for the first three, four years of doing that transition, I was scared, you know, Right. I, I was scared. <laughs> won't use any extra uh, that people would discover you're, the, you're this squishy biologist that kind of is not the hardcore computational person. Yeah, right? it's like you know I don't have hardcore math skills. I can program a computer, but you know nobody ever really tested my limits on this because I didn't take any courses in it. Right. I just kind of have been doing it. I hoped that that was enough, but I was deeply afraid that it was not. In a way, I believed that it was not, and that in a way was motivating. I, mean, I worked my butt off to improve myself along that axis because I felt like I had something to prove. And so at that transition, I felt it deeply. And then I became more and more comfortable as I figured out what my style was and what I had to contribute. And then every professional transition I've had since then, I felt like a fraud and I didn't know what I was doing. The I didn't know what I was doing part was, was true, but I, I learned, right? And I was expected to learn and that was okay. And then when I moved to Google, again, I felt this again, even though I had the skills at that point to succeed, I felt like I had made a transition and fooled people into yep. accepting me into this new role, which was my dream job and is my dream job. And I felt like it was going to be taken away from me if I didn't do something. And, and what that something was, was, was so vague. Yep. Like, you know, it's like I couldn't even describe to you what it was that I had to do in order to feel safe. And what I had to do to feel safe was just be patient with myself. Ultimately, I think that's, that's kind of what I found for myself is it just took time. It took about two years for me to feel comfortable in my own skin in this role. And that kind of patience with myself is something that is difficult for me, but uh, has been ultimately like a good investment in, in respecting and enjoying that, that kind of like self, self-patience, I guess. I'm really glad that you brought up the idea of psychological safety and in particular, the imposter syndrome. Again, I think it's one of these things that many people are unaware of. It is a phenomenon. And the most important part of it is to give transparency and, and to get good at showing vulnerability yourself. So I'm really glad you brought it up. I'm glad to be talking about it. I think that's the important part is to be talking about it. And it's, it's not one of these like supreme technical skills or interesting, you know, new problems in medicine or biology, but it is something that affects nearly everybody that thinks about those things. Yep. And hopefully just by starting to have the conversation in the open, it's a little bit easier to talk about it amongst your friends or, you know, at work or just even to yourself. Well, some interesting stuff to keep in mind. I'm glad that we got to talk about that. And thanks for bringing us that inspiring interview with Corey Bargman.
It was such a pleasure to have both of these conversations. And with that, that's it for this episode of Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wilchko. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of GV, Google, or any of their respective affiliates, including Alphabet. The hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice at gv.com.